are about to find out who's burning up in this desert landscape of the third ring of the seventh circle of hell. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. We're walking passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy, and we are all the way up to Canto 14 of Inferno. I cannot actually believe we're this far. When I started this podcast in September of 2020 in the middle of a global pandemic, I, I had no idea I'd even get to Canto 14, I'd hoped, but here we are, nearing the midpoint of Inferno. If you're just dropping in here, you might want to go back and see what's come before, because well, especially these episodes of Canto 14, a lot's going to ride on what came before, but if you didn't, and you don't, and you don't want to, cool, we're here. So let's do it. Canto 14, lines 19 through 42. I saw naked spirits by the droves. They cried with utter and outright misery, and each was subject to its own set of laws. Some people were lying spread-eagle on the ground, others were sitting scrunched over, and others walked about constantly. There was a lot more of those who roamed around, while there were fewer of those stretched out in torment, although their tongues were freer to wail. All over that sand, like a slow fall, it snowed fat flakes of fire, like snow falling in the mountains when there's no wind, like the flakes that Alexander saw fall in the humid parts of India, the flames that came down whole and settled on the earth, the ones he ordered his soldiers to stomp out because it was easier to put out individual flames in the same way. This eternal burning drifted down, but this time ignited the ground all around like a match to kindling, all to double the pain. Without a single rest, there was a wild dance of miserable hands this way, that way, as they tried to slap away each fresh cinder. We're going to stop here because, well, hey, we finally got burning hell. We've had some burning tombs and... We had some sort of hellscape with those neutrals way before even Limbo. But now we finally got the fire. We got the fire that everybody expects in hell, and here it is. Except this fire is kind of weird. It's snowflakes. We're going to want to talk a lot about that. Let me just remind you where we've been. We've come down a scree-filled slope past the Minotaur and down to the bottom of the seventh circle. We've got two more circles of hell yet to go below us, but we're in the seventh circle. There, we found the violent against others and against others' property. Then we passed into a wood, a strange, fruitless, barren, weird, perverted Garden of Eden wood where we found suicides metamorphosized into trees or bushes or thickets. And we, we found also people who had committed economic suicide by squandering their property, running through being chased by black dogs, breaking apart the thickets. And now we've come out into this place where it all just seems on fire all around us in this burning sandscape. This passage has a couple knots in it, but it really has a long bit about the sand and snow. That's the part I'm going to want to focus on. So let's get to it. The passage starts, I saw naked spirits by the droves. And I just want to stop on the word naked. It's assumed that all the souls 
in Inferno with one giant exception that's coming up on down in Circle 8. All the souls are naked. That hasn't been stated outright over and over again that they're naked for various reasons, but it's kind of assumed, first of all, because it would be more shameful to be unclothed, and secondly, because clothes would somehow be a preventative against some of the tortures. It would help not actually, what, to feel the force of the wind so much if you had clothes on, to feel necessarily the, the, the swampiness of sticks, and here not to feel the fire. It seems like our poet is intent on focusing on the nudity of the damned, when it highlights their torment. And since these people are under a snowfall of fire, it stands to reason that here he would point out their nakedness. There's some commentators who point out their nakedness because of other reasons, including some of the reasons of who's here. I'm not sure. I think for me, the assumption is everybody's naked in hell unless otherwise stated. And here, we're to be told that basically there's no stopping the falling fireflakes from burning them as they come down. So, naked spirits in droves, crying out in outright ministry, and each one was subject to its own laws. Which brings us to the second point. These are the next six lines of this passage, and it says some were lying spread eagle on the ground, or at least my English translation says this. There are other ways to translate it. You can find my English translation on my website, Mark Scarborough, or walkingwithdante.com, and you can do better than that and get yourself a facing page Florentine English translation. That would be even better. But my translation is some people were lying spread eagle on the ground. Others were sitting scrunched over and others walked about constantly. There's three groups here. There's the the ones prone. <laughs> there's the ones hunched. And there's the ones walking. Later, we're going to find they're doing a little more than walking, but that's to come. So there's these three groups, and there are a lot more of those who roamed around. Interesting that we would stop on that detail, that the poet would make sure that we understood that of these three types on this plane, the prone, the scrunched, and the walking, that there are more walking than anything, but that those prone or those spread eagle or lying out on the ground, they're, that there are fewer of them, but they're louder in their torment, and that's partly because they can't in any way stop the fire from falling on them, as we'll see. They are subject to it without necessarily any way to get it off of them. There's a little quibble on that, but we'll see that come about. What I want to stop in here and say that this six lines here would probably be pretty opaque to a first reader. You'd look at them and you'd think, wait, okay, what, why Why are there three groups? And why is one spread eagle? And why is one scrunched over? So there are three groups here in the third ring. Uh, you have to remember back to Canto 11 and Virgil's map of hell. He talks about how the violent in Circle 7 are divided into three groups, violent against others, violent against themselves, violent against God. And then when he talked about those who had tried to be violent against God, we'll talk about the problem of that in the next episode. But when he talks about those, for shorthand, the blasphemers, he added the sins of Sodom and Cahor. So he said there were these two other sins that were punished there in that 
third ring of the seventh circle, Sodom and Cahor. And I talked to you about Sodom and Sodom and Gomorrah and Sodomy and homosexuality and Cahor as a banking center and that these are probably the two references that are going on in that passage. So we've been set up, if we remember Canto 11, to think that there are going to be three groups here. What's curious, even though this seems opaque until we get into it, we are going to, in the next episode, meet one of those prone on the ground. What's curious is the stopping to say that there are more walking around than anybody else. We're going to talk more about that when we get into Cantos 15 and 16. Basically, those walking about will take up two full Cantos of Inferno. So not only are there more of those walking about, there's more text about those walking about. Perhaps our poet's setting us up for that, that we're going to have two full Cantos of the walking about. Or perhaps, in fact, there's something about the walking about that causes him to need to write two cantos about them. But more about that in many episodes ahead. Let's pass on and just look at the firefall. All over that sand, the passage goes on, with a slow fall, it snowed fat flakes of fire, like snow falling in the mountains when there's no wind. Like the flakes that Alexander saw fall in the humid parts of India, the flames that came down whole and settled on the earth, the ones he ordered his soldiers to stomp out because it was easier to put out individual flames. I should say. In other words, the flames came down that Alexander, and we're talking Alexander the Great, Alexander saw in India. They came down and he told his troops, you know, squash them out, put them out with your shoes as soon as they fall, lest they congregate together and create a wildfire. Put them out one by one. That's the idea here, to stomp out because it was easier to put out individual flames. In the same way, this eternal burning drifted down, but this time ignited the ground all around, so there was no Alexander and no Alexander's troops to stop it. Like a match to kindling, all to double the pain. I want to say a lot about this. This is where the bulk of this podcast episode is going to sit, is in this bit about the firefall and the snowfall. So let's get to it first. What we're seeing here is a non-Aristotelian universe. Let me explain that. Here, fire is falling down. In an Aristotelian universe, fire always moves up. So you're at a campfire, right? And those flames are coming up and they're going up in the air and you see the cinders going up with them. Why is that? Remember, no concept of gravity, zero. In the, at this moment, and zero, especially in Aristotle's moment. The concept, the physical law concept, is basically like attracts like. And so since you see fire going up, you must know it's trying to get back to a larger reservoir of itself. The reason you know that is because water flows downhill because it's trying to get to a larger reservoir of water. It's trying to get to the ocean or the sea. It's trying to get to where there's more water. And since like attracts like, and more like would attract little like to it, as it were, thus water flows downhill. See, no gravity. So fire is going up. So fire must be trying to get up to something. And thus, you posit that there's a ring of fire 
out around the Earth or somehow around this planet or above this planet, there is either a ring or a plane of fire. And that's why the fire is going up. Mind you, you have almost no evidence (laughs) for this ring of fire, except maybe the auroras if you live far enough north, but Aristotle didn't. So you have no evidence necessarily for this ring of fire, but you posit its existence because you see flames going up. And why are they going up? Why aren't flames going laterally or horizontally? Why aren't they going down? Why don't flames go down toward the earth itself? Oh, well, because there must be a ring of fire or a plane of fire, if you believe in a flat earth, above us and the flame is heading toward it or trying to get to it. And this is how you know, and this was a tenant held hard in the physical sciences until the early 19th century, this is how you know that the center of the earth is cold because flame goes up. If the center of the earth was hot, flame would go down. I I know you're, you're I know you're talking now in your head about modern geology and modern physics are scratch that. No gravity. And it was a tenet, a tenet that the church held that the center of the earth had to be cold and therefore they had to explain volcanoes, but you know what? We're going to hit that in Inferno. And so we're going to save our volcano talk for a long time. But, you know, the volcanoes, you have to explain them because clearly the center of the earth is cold. Otherwise, fire would go down, not up. Okay, that's the first thing I want to say. Non-Aristotelian universe. Second, what's going on here is we should remember a passage from the epistle of Jude in the New Testament. There are all these little bitty epistles that run around at the back of the New Testament, 2nd and 3rd John, 2nd Peter, all before you get to the revelation of St. John or the apocalypse of St. John. And one of the last is the little epistle of Jude. And it's just one chapter long, so it's just verses. I'm going to read you verses 6 and 7 of Jude just to set the passage back in some way. Well, you know what? I'm going to go on 6, 7, 8, and 9. Here they are. And the angels who did not keep their own position but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains in deepest darkness for the judgment of the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which in the same manner as they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust, serve in his example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these dreamers also defile the flesh reject authority and slander the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil and disputed about the body of Moses, he did not dare to bring a condemnation of slander against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. All right, so what's going on in this little strange passage in the epistle of Jude? Basically, he's saying that they these people are courting or desiring an apocalypse that's going to fall just as it fell on, on Sodom and Gomorrah because of their immoral lives, and this fire is going to fall from heaven onto them. Notice fire falling. Again, this must be miraculous. It's non-Aristotelian. It doesn't follow natural laws. It must be from God. The fire falling down on Sodom, and what happened is these people are dreamers, but they reject God and they follow their own desires. This will become important in this passage because it seems like Jude 6, 7, 8, long in there, 5, 6, 7, 8, is sitting behind some of this canto that we're going to encounter. And I wanted to introduce it here. So what's the third thing about all this firefall? 
This is a clear reference here to Albert Magnus's De Meteoris, his treatise on not just meteorology, but kind of physical laws. In that treatise, Albert Magnus quotes from what we now know is a fake letter from Alexander the Great back to Aristotle. In that, what we now know is a fake fraudulent letter. Magnus didn't know that. We do. It's a fake fraudulent letter. Alexander tells his teacher, Aristotle, that in India, this firefall happened, this rainfall, snowfall of fire happened, and thus putting out the ground, the flames on the ground. This is all kind of a quote back from Albert Magnus, and that's where Dante, the poet, is picking it up from. But as if, quotes from Albert Magnus and potentially Alexander the Great, although it's not, but potentially, and Jude, the epistle of Jude, are not enough in this passage. There's one more bit in this passage that is a referent or an echo to something else. It's when it says, all over that sand, like a slow fall, it snowed fat flakes of fire, like snow falling in the mountains when there's no wind. That line is a clear allusion reference, it's almost a quote, from a sonnet by Guido Cavalcanti. If you don't know who Guido Cavalcanti is, Go back and listen to the episodes for Canto 10 of Inferno. Guido Cavalcanti is Dante's friend and poetic rival. In this sonnet by Cavalcanti, he's listing off why a certain lady is so lovely and the pleasures of her loveliness. And one of the lines in this sonnet is that she's as lovely as white snow falling on a windless day. Like snow here in comedy like snow falling in the mountains when there's no wind. It's that same referent point back to Cavalcanti right there. You should just kind of pause that Guido Cavalcanti is here amongst those who attempt violence to God here implicitly behind the text. We probably can surmise that Guido's rather atheistic stance bothers Dante in some ways, our great Catholic poet, and so that there's a implicit slight hint of Guido Cavalcanti here when we come amongst the blasphemers, it only adds to the rich texture of the text. This person who Dante, the real Dante, exiled from Florence, who Cavalcanti died in that exile, who was Dante's first great friend and poetic rival, but who did not hold to Dante's rather ecstatic religious visions, to say the least. This rather cynical and potentially agnostic, if not atheistic, poet Cavalcanti, that it's here, it just adds to the texture. Think what what's going on here. We have got Albert Magnus, St. Thomas Aquinas's teacher. We've got Alexander the Great, a letter quoted from him, which Magnus misquotes, uh, from, from, or quotes from a fake letter, but he doesn't know that. Still, that's going on here. We've got Jude, an epistle from the New Testament going on here, and we may have Guido Cavalcante. And then in the middle of all that is Alexander. Remember, we saw Alexander the Great. He's back in that river of boiling blood, back in Canto 12, amongst those who did violence against others. He's at 12 line 107, if you want to go look back and find him. There he is, standing or sunk deep in the river of boiling blood. We've already seen him, and it's important to note that Alexander is a giant of history. Why do I bring that up? 
Well, you have to wait for the next episode of this podcast to find that out. But this is a historical giant, a, somebody who changed the way the landscape of the world is all inside this whole non-Aristotelian fire-falling snow bit that goes on here, except the plane is on fire and it causes a reaction amongst the damned. And that's the last point. The end of the passage is without a single rest, there was a wild dance of miserable hands this way and that as they tried to slap away each fresh sender. The word for wild dance is tresca. Long, long ago, Benevuto da Imola, in his commentary, his Latin commentary on comedy in 1380, claimed that tresca, this word here, is a Neapolitan folk dance. It goes like this. I, as the leader, touch myself somewhere on my body. You all, as the other people, let's say in a ring, it doesn't have to be in a ring, but let's pretend, are in a ring, you touch yourself there. I touch myself someplace else, you touch yourself someplace else. You know, we, you, you keep mimicking what I'm doing, except as I'm doing this, I'm picking up speed. Did I mention I'm probably also pretty drunk, but I'm picking up speed as I'm doing this. So by the end of this, you're trying to mimic my behavior. I have been going so fast that I'm not just touching myself anymore. I'm slapping myself. You're slapping yourself. We're all trying to mimic each other. And it becomes just this unbelievable frenzy of slapping our own bodies over and over again as you try to follow my lead in what I'm doing to me. That is is what's going on here. These people are trying to slap away these cinders, these flames that are falling on them that burn them very badly, and they're trying to get rid of it. And so there's just this wild dance of hands that are going out on the plane. It must look very chaotic. People walking about constantly, walking all over the place, others spread on the ground, others scrunched over, some of them able to slap away the cinders, some of them not. It's all extremely violent and extremely wild. In fact, this bit at the end with the Tresca, this is the violence subjected to violence. Not only the violence of the fire, but they're inflicting it on themselves because you can't inflict in violence on God. Not in an Aristotelian, Thomistic, Catholic context. You can't do violence to God. You think you can. You think you can cause some kind of violence to happen to God, but you can't. And so ultimately, you just do the violence to yourself. You just end up slapping yourself this way and that to get rid of the cinders as they fall in this completely miraculous, non-physical lawed snowfall of fire that the poet lines out for us before we hit the first of the sinners, which we'll do in the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. So come back, rate this podcast, like it. I would most appreciate it. If you would rate it, if you drop a comment, that would be brilliant. Thank you. Connect with me on social media, lots of different places. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Hashtag it, Walking with Dante on Twitter, and I'll follow you. You follow me. We can talk about Dante come back because we yet to meet a blasphemer. But boy, are we about to on the next episode of Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.